Welcome, everybody, to the Center Mind Podcast, where my guest today is the noted author, Frank White. We dive into a really rich, out-of-this-world exploration of the overview effect and all its many implications for both inner and outer evolution. Our conversation begins with Frank's entry into his study of this transformative effect before turning to why it is that not everybody who has the overview is indeed affected by it. What is the common denominator behind the effect? And can you have it here on Earth? We discuss the role of the space principle, both inner and outer, as a transformational tool, and how evolution is largely about increasing perspectives, which are brought about with more openness and hence more space to perceive. But what about the underview effect and the change of perspective brought out from within? How does all this relate to right view in Buddhism? And why, in fact, did Frank turn to Zen Buddhism? Where does meditation as habituation to openness fit in? The conversation then turns to how expansion and openness is central to evolution, as embodied, for one example, in human development from homocentric to ethnocentric to cosmocentric worldviews. And what about the cosmo hypothesis and space philosophy? Where do vantage points come into play? And how about the place of virtual reality in opening the aperture of our awareness? When really brought to earth, the issue is not what we see, but how we see it. Terranauts, psychonauts, and oneironauts can see just as much as astronauts. You just need to introduce more space into your mind and heart to see. The overview effect is needed more than ever to help people here on Earth and the Earth itself. Hey, welcome everybody to this Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is is truly um, a celebrity out of this world. I've been uh, waiting for the longest time to talk to him about a very deep, dear and near topic to me, uh, issue of space. Um, And so as usual, I will read an official formal biography, and then we're going to launch in, or in this case, launch out, perhaps and uh, hopefully some compelling topics. So Frank White is an educator, space philosopher, and communications consultant. He has authored and co-authored numerous books on topics ranging from space exploration to artificial intelligence to Zen Buddhism. Excuse me. His best-known work is The Overview Effect, Space Exploration and Human Evolution. Since the first edition of his book on the subject was published in 1987, the overview effect has become a standard term for describing the spaceflight experience. Frank is currently co-authoring a book on Zen Buddhism and the overview effect with his son, Josh White, who is also a Zen sensei. He is a co-author and president of the Human Space Program Incorporated, a central project to develop a blueprint for conscious space migration and stewardship for the solar ecosystem. Frank is also a communications professional with experience in multiple forms of media, and in disciplines ranging from public relations for high-tech companies to development communications for nonprofit organizations. He's previously held development communications positions at Harvard. He teaches courses on fundraising and communication at Harvard Extension School and Harvard Summer School. And, and it's really, Frank, it's such a delight. Thank you 
for taking time out of your uh, very busy schedule to talk with us. I, for one, am really, I'm really excited about this. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. So My let's point. start. Let's start with your permission. I, I mean, here's the the kind of trajectory um, that I would in, uh, suggest that we pursue today is perhaps start as a terranaut on ground level, um, a little bit more exoteric about what the overview effect is. Um, your your uh, inspiration for writing this book and how the term came to you, and then perhaps we can. Um, go into more high altitudes and talk about some of the esoteric aspects, um, in particular, how your experiences in outer space relate to the inner space of the spiritual trajectories and, and your uh, deep fascination interest with things like Zen Buddhism. So um, for people who may not be familiar with your work, let's, um, if you don't mind, let's start with a little bit like how you shot yourself out into space, so to speak, how this experience came about and, and what inspired you to write this book and then the two other books that followed that. Okay, sure. Well, uh, I should clarify and say that I myself have never uh, been in outer space. Uh, my work is based on talking to people who have been. Um, I'm getting close to 50 interviews with astronauts. And, of course, I've read a lot of their writings as well. Uh, but out of that, I've come up with some ideas about the experience. And... I should start, though, by saying something that's important to this, which is that in the beginning, the experience I had that led to the term overview effect really was not related to astronauts at all. Uh, back in the 1980s, I was involved with Gerard K. O'Neill and the Space Studies Institute. And Jerry was talking about building freestanding communities in the solar system, actually at Lagrange points between the Earth and the moon. And it was a very comprehensive vision, the idea of moving population and industry off the planet for the benefit of Earth, because there was a lot of talk in the 70s about limits to growth and the impact of humanity on our planet. So it was really a space initiative, but an environmental initiative as well. And I was impressed and interested, and I was flying cross-country thinking about this, and I got what I call a taste of the overview effect. Not the full experience, but a taste. And I realized if you did live in one of those communities, you would have what I called an overview. You'd see the Earth as a whole. You'd realize it's a whole system. Everything's connected. Everything's interrelated. And I thought you'd experience the overview effect. And then I knew, of course, there were no such people. And it, it occurred to me astronauts were as close as we could come. So that's what led to interviewing astronauts. And the, the hypothesis changed a bit because I didn't really think of the overview effect as being dramatic or out of the ordinary. It would be like we see the moon in the sky, and that's where the moon ought to be. And uh, we may get romantic about it. We may be impressed. We may love the moon for its beauty, 
but we don't expect it not to be there. And it turned out when I started talking to astronauts, it was a little different. Being raised on the surface, being Earthlings, they found that the view of the Earth dramatic, out of the ordinary, shocking, in fact. And it led to a modification of the definition, and it's more, you know, it's an experience that astronauts have when they see the Earth from space and in space, and it, it includes feelings like a realization of the fragility of our situation. Um, you know, it's a shift in identity from identifying with your hometown or your home country to identifying with the whole planet. And it's this realization that we're, we're all in this together. That's a constant phrase that you hear from astronauts. So, you know, uh, it can be thought of too as the overview and the effect. The overview is that, that experience of seeing the earth in that way and feeling it in that way. And then the effect is how it gets processed through the mind, through the body, and through the astronaut's history. And I, the final thing I would say about it is they, they consistently say it's ineffable. <laughs> That's one way it takes in Buddhism. Uh, as I've said before, any good Zen master will say, will say that Zen is beyond words. There's just, there's no way to describe it, Andrew. It can't be put into words, but I must get back to writing my book now about Zen Buddhism. <laughs> right, right. Excuse me, I'm writing a book about it. So, you know, uh, the astronauts are very agreeable and they try to put it into words for me. And that's why, you know, I, I have written books about it, but it is a really dramatic experience. And, uh, I learn something new every time I interview another astronaut because, again, it's a common experience, but there's always a nuance each individual brings to the conversation. And my understanding, Frank, is that is that while everybody has the experience, not everybody is actually transformed in an equal way, right? I mean, people bring their own particular predispositions and and whatnot to the experience. And so maybe talk a little bit about that. I mean, what what might be your um, conjecture for why some people can have completely life-altering experiences? Yeah. They have the over the effect and others don't. I mean, so I'm curious what your relationship to that is. Well, my touchstone for that is my interview with Edgar Mitchell back in the 1980s, one of the first astronauts I interviewed. And he he went to the moon and on the way back, he had a transformational experience. That's the only way it can describe it. He not only had a new understanding of the earth, but he felt connected to the entire universe. It was so dramatic that I said, this is something more than just the overview effect. And I called it the universal insight. Mm -hmm. He came back and he asked a lot of academics and others, what happened to me? Can you explain it? And somebody called it samadhi. And he said, yeah. And they explained what samadhi is. And he said, yeah, that's what happened. So he told me 
exactly what you said. Everybody had the same experience, but then they had to interpret through their own history and background. And he said, as far as how dramatic it was, it depended on how open and eager people were. And that's a really interesting hypothesis, which I've repeated over the years. I actually created this formula for impact of the overview effect. Mm-hmm. I, I had my Einsteinian moment, you know, uh, uh-huh. I can reduce the overview effect to a formula. And it was I or impact equal D distance from the earth times T time of the mission plus openness. <laughs> That's beautiful. So <laughs> I threw in openness, but it was not emphasized. Mm-hmm. And then William Shatner flew. Oh, yeah. And he flew on Blue Origin. It was a very short flight. They weren't far from the surface. Mm-hmm. But everyone who saw him emerge from the capsule said, oh, wow, that was transformational. And so I had to make it D times T times O. O had to be brought up as just as important and maybe more important. So the evidence to me says that Mitchell was right. Openness to the experience seems to be a really important uh, part of it. And I think, Andrew, you could apply that to anything on Earth. I mean, a lot of people meditate. I meditate. I bet you do. Oh, yeah. You know, um, how open you are to what happens can be a big factor in what actually happens. And I go to church. And sometimes I start crying in church. I'm very moved. I don't know why. I mean, the rituals are familiar. The stories are familiar. And sometimes I'm very distracted and I, you know, I find my, my mind critiquing the sermon. <laughs> you know, I, oh, I could do a better sermon than that. And that's not very enlightened. Um, so, yeah, I think what Mitchell said about the overview effect is accurate about anything. And maybe that's something we should all bear in mind that being in the moment, uh, you know, again, the kind of traditional spiritual practice of be here now, forget the past, forget the future, be in the moment. It's, it's pretty good advice for people on the surface or people in orbit. Yeah, so, I mean, wonderful, wonderful, Frank. There's a couple of things for those who may not be familiar with the term samadhi. I mean, it's a very big term, and especially in the Buddhist tradition. <clears throat> Basically, um, summation, meditative absorption, uh, an experience of complete presence, a complete openness. And it's lovely that you, you introduce what I think is one of the central narratives of this um, entire kind of journey is, in fact, the narrative of openness itself. And um it's like when we go from either a, a, a developmental point of view or even 
an evolutionary evolutionary point of view. You know, we progress from a Ptolemaic view of the universe. You know, Copernican just keep everything just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And in terms of human development, we go from egocentric to ethnocentric to cosmocentric, homocentric to anthropocentric to to uh, um, uh, world centric. And so it's very interesting. It's like um, ever expanding rings of openness. And to me, Frank, it ties in beautifully with my favorite definition of meditation, since you brought that up, which is habituation to openness, Um, which if we talk about that as habituation to open openness slash space, then that becomes really, really quite compelling. And I want to return to that in a few minutes when we go a little bit deeper. Um, But talk a little bit more, if you would, about what you seem to intimate towards the end is how, therefore, we don't have to blast out into orbit. We don't have to go out into into outer space to have these um, effects. And it's you interestingly pointed out, yes, you can have the overview, but it's not an effect. It's not an overview effect unless you're affected by it, right? Um, But in terms of the, not many of us have the capacity, even though I know there's wonderful projects now, funding people, um, the Human Space Project and others, right? To get people to have that. Talk a little bit more about the the fundamental effect principle that you don't have to go out there. That you can you can as a terranaut, as someone living on this earth, you can have the overview effect. Yeah. So I'll share a little bit about that. Yeah. So I would say, just uh, to be very uh, specific, I I really do think you do have to go into a suborbital hop or an over, uh, or a a low Earth orbit mission or to the moon to have the full overview effect. That that definition is a definition of what an astronaut experiences on viewing the Earth from space and in space. So you need the overview to have the overview effect. However, and however, as I said earlier, I think you can have a taste of the overview effect without going into outer space. And one of, one of the, I mean, they're kind of literal ways, and then they're metaphorical ways. So, for example, I had the idea of it, or the epiphany that led to it, flying on an airplane. That's really analogous. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about the airplane trip, that's available to you, it's available to me, it's available to everyone. It's just that people have gotten used to flying on an airplane and they're not looking out the window. They don't take the opportunity. And I was recently on another airplane trip. I sat by the window. I looked out and I thought, wow, this is what I experienced 35 years ago. Hmm. You know, it's this, I'm looking down, I'm seeing these mountains, I'm seeing the plains. I'm having some of those same feelings about connectedness and and relatedness of everything. So, you know, there are very analogous experiences. You you and Ron Garan were skiing and you were on the top of a mountain looking down and and uh you know, you were having a taste of the overview effect there. And uh it's interesting that more than one astronaut that I've talked to is a mountain climber. Mm. <laughs> and uh, 
And so these are more or less uh, literal, uh, you know, analogies that have to do with getting above the surface of, mm -hmm. of the planet. But there are other, there are other analogous experiences. Uh, I have a weekly meeting called the Overview Roundtable where we talk about these issues. And one of our members has a great deal of experience with uh, scuba diving. Yeah. And he thinks that he's had a lot of the same feelings, the effects. And, of course, it's easy to call it the underview effect. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, my friend and publisher, Dylan Taylor, has been deep into the ocean and submarines and submersibles. And, again, people who've done a lot of diving can see connections and some of the same feelings or re relationships and and then there's virtual reality right where a number of people are literally attempting to reproduce the overview effect and one of the most dramatic examples is called uh the infinite hmm. have you heard of that i have not no tell me about it there's a VR company called Felix and Paul, and they work closely with NASA. And they were able to put VR cameras on the International Space Station. And they actually have very real footage from outer space. And the infinite is a, an experience where you go into a large warehouse type place. You put on the headset. And you feel like you're actually exploring the ISS. Mm. You can go on a spacewalk. And, you know, I've had astronauts who say it's pretty close to the real thing. Yeah. Uh, at least one astronaut. And I've had people be deeply, deeply moved by it. So the other thing I would say just to conclude is there are less literal ways to get some of the effect, if not the overview. And that has to do with closer going back to our interest in Buddhism and spirituality. I'm sure you know people, and maybe you yourself, have had a flash of realization of the interconnectedness of all things. And that happens and and in many ways that's the purpose of meditation and in many ways that's the essence of enlightenment and and so again you don't get the overview but you do get some of the same effects and i i find it fascinating and the thing is i am most interested not in the well i shouldn't say this I'm very interested in the individual experience, but I'm most interested in whether we can make it a sociological experience. Yeah. Can we can we bring the overview effect down to earth? Absolutely. Can we give people the experience in whatever possible way we can to shift the consciousness of planet Earth and therefore have a better way of tackling the problems that we have and that we've largely created here yep. on, on our planet. That, 
that's the real holy grail for me. I, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Frank. And I think that's really now we're starting to get a little bit more towards the essence of the effect itself, because that's the irreducible component is the effect, whether it's initiated by an overview or underview. At a certain point, you could say it's somewhat irrelevant. It's it's actually the effect. And it's so interesting. Um, I have gone scuba diving. And the, the very first time I did it, I've never been to space, um, but the first time I drove dropped in there, I mean, just share a little bit about it. I was uh, it was a really rough kind of day. We're a mile off um, shore in a, in a off a of Cozumel, you know, heavy kind of drift diving um, area. It was getting. I'm a really strong swimmer, but it's getting kind of edgy, really windy, wavy. And I got out there and I went overboard. And I'm holding the regulator and I'm being tossed in water, slapping in my face, and it's all rough and choppy. And and again, the, the narrative here is I'm lost at the surface levels, right? And then I release the buoyancy control vest. I go down, and within just a few seconds, all of a sudden, I entered this vast um, experience where the surface chop was still there, right? But now I was below it, and it no longer had that same impact. And so the the so-called underview effect, whether it's above or below, I think the issue is you're above or below the superficiality. You're above or below what seems to be the status quo. And so to me, Frank, um, this seems to come down to the central uh, kind of hard essence of perspective. It's really the effect is, is generative. Uh, or actually, what it's about is, is creating perspective. And if you're having this in a VR, and I've, I've done a fair amount of stuff with VR. We did a study um, working with virtual reality and, and lucidity and all kinds of stuff. So I have a, a fairly decent familiarity with that. And so I'm not familiar with the infinite program, but it would make total sense to me and so if you can therefore have an experience with that in cyberspace, then fundamentally what this comes down irreducibly to, and you're, you're kind of suggesting this, is this is a cognitive effect, whether it's brought about in meditation, going above, going below, or into cyberspace, it's fundamentally a journey of perspective and a journey in, into um, different dimensions of cognition. And so I'm curious if you how that lands with you and if you have a little bit more to say about that, because central to this as well, in a field of study called integral studies, one of the, the ways they characterize evolution is literally increased perspectives. Um, and so the more perspectives we can take in this place, in this instance, the perspective of connectivity, um, all the wonderful things you're talking about, I think that actually is indicative of more evolved dimensions of the human condition. So does that does that speak to you? Does that land with you? Yeah. It reminds me of a, a, a notion I explored in one of my other books called The New Camelot. Mm. And it struck me that the key here is, can we hold two realities in our mind at the same time? Beautifully, yeah. Unity and diversity, let's say. Yeah. So if you're an astronaut and you're in orbit looking down or maybe you're on a spacewalk you see the beauty of earth you see the fragility you see the unit unity of everything that's on it every life form and yet you came from the surface like when you went down you knew it was choppy above but you had a different experience below the astronauts don't forget that there's chaos down there. There are people who don't have enough to eat. There's a war. I mean, if you're in orbit right now, you know there's a horrible war happening in Ukraine. Uh, you don't forget that. 
And yet both things are real. And when you come back, that sense of unity and oneness may remain in the background, but you, you're immediately assailed with the kind of diversity or chaotic nature of reality on the surface. So holding the two and understanding that both are valid and they are what you said, products of perspective at the moment. So, yeah, I, I really believe that that is key to all of this. And I thought about this in a little more depth. I just wrote a paper for a journal and it it was really a journal looking at international relations, you might say. And I I thought about the fact that the astronauts keep saying, I knew there were no borders or boundaries between countries before I went, but I was still surprised to see no borders and boundaries mm. because I've looked at globes and they do have borders and boundaries. And we act like they're there. It's a big deal to us when we're on the surface. And I thought about that. Well, what does that mean for international relations? Does it mean open borders? Should we just get rid of borders? Forget about it? Or is there still a valid role for borders and boundaries? And I concluded, and I don't know if everybody would agree with me, but I concluded that yes, there is a valid role uh, for borders and boundaries. As long as we, we remember we created them, they're not real. And we don't have to be so rigid about them as we are. And we certainly shouldn't be fighting wars over them. But then I thought, well, if we're gonna do that, then a diplomat working with a diplomat from America, United States of America working with a diplomat from, let's say, uh, Mexico or a diplomat from France, aren't they still just going to act the way they've always acted, which is to protect the interest of their own country? And let's just say as an, a, a thought experiment, the diplomat from the United States and di diplomat from France actually went on a commercial space flight. They, they experienced the overview effect. I think they could hold both things at exactly. once. Exactly. exactly. I'm here to <clears throat> speak for the United States. I'm here to speak for France. But I've had this experience. I know we need to come to an agreement that's good for the common, the common good. So I think we can still exist in a world that has a lot of the features that, you know, it does have today. And yet we have that other consciousness that's informing what we do all the time. A hundred percent. You know, Jung talked about it. Uh, Niels Bohr talked about it. I mean, it goes back all the way to the, to the ancient wisdom traditions. You know, the ability to actually hold seemingly disparate points of view simultaneously um, and, and to do this, to, to maintain the vision of the unity and, and yet still celebrating the multiplicity. I mean, who says, who says you can't do both? Um, and I think that perhaps is um, we get lost in that, that it has to be one way or the other. Why can't it be, why can't it be and instead of either or? So, so central to this as well, um, Frank, 
is is the notion that you write about is, is space as a transformational tool. And I would also all, uh, argue or at least um, assert uh, a, a tool for healing. I mean, when, when, for instance, just colloquially, you know, now we're starting to talk a little bit more about the unifying principle of space altogether, literally the space principle in relationships to inner and outer space. Because as, as you may know, in, in things like the Dzogchen tradition of Buddhism, they, they talk um, very compellingly about outer space is not the same as the inner space of the mind, but neither is it different. And there again, we have this kind of dilethiist approach that it's it's not the same, but it's not different. And somewhere being able to hold those two seemingly irreconcilable views, I think is really is really um, transformative. So can you say a little bit more about, because we're kind of circumambulating this topic, space as a transformational tool in a, in a tool for healing. Sure. Well, back in the 80s, when I was working on this topic, I was also doing a lot of personal growth work. Uh, I was training to be a therapist. I was in therapy. I was doing a lot of uh, <clears throat> workshops. I was getting into Zen. I was really working on personal growth quite a bit. And I'm sure it informed my experience of the overview effect and my interest in it. And as I was writing the first draft of the first edition, it struck me that when people talked about space exploration and development, they really did not talk about it as a tool of social change or personal transformation. It was more talking about, uh, you know, it was talking about using resources for the benefit of Earth or you know, um, the value of exploration in general. There were a lot of rationales for it, but I saw, oh, this is a way to change consciousness. If we choose to, and this goes back to Edgar Mitchell. I also thought the overview effect is just the beginning. Being on Mars won't be the same. The farther out we go, the more our inner life will be affected, really. Yeah. Um, people say, well, will you experience the overview effect on Mars? Not exactly the same way, because if you're in orbit or on the moon, you see the Earth as what we know the Earth to be with oceans and continents and so on. On Mars, you're not going to be able to distinguish those. It's going to be a point of life, light. <laughs> and, uh, you know, your identity is going to change because you, you can't have a sense of self without a sense of other. And that other could be a sports team. It could be a city. It could be a country. It could be a planet or whatever, or it could be God. But the other is going to be different on Mars than it is here. And so it struck me, wow, we could really think about how we use spaceflight in a new way. And I'm on the board of advisors of Space for Humanity, and that's what they're doing. So as you may know, Space for Humanity chooses people who get to go on a flight and there's a, an agreement in advance 
you get to go on this flight and we pay for it, but you have to come back and do something for the earth hmm. that's consistent with the sustainable development goals of the UN. And so from the very beginning, the person knows, number one, they're going to get ready for an experience. That's why they're going. And number two, they don't do it just for themselves. And with NASA astronauts, it's different. NASA astronauts have generally gone to do work, to do science, to to do something that's a priority for the nation, for example. And they aren't really asked to do anything when they come back for the good of the planet. They often do, but that's not part of, uh, that's not part of how NASA selects astronauts. And so they don't go for the experience and they're not required to do something uh, for the planet Earth when they return. Mm -hmm. I, I'd like to see more organizations like Space or Humanity where the whole idea is this is why you're going is to is to have this experience and then use it for for good. And I think I think we'll see more of that. I really do. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I'm I'm aware of that particular project, <clears throat> and uh, for anybody listening who's a part of that, I, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> I, I make myself yeah. available to go to space. But you know, Frank, it, it, I want to come back to to um, your your interest in Zen Buddhism, and like for instance, like what draw what drew you there? Because as you know, it's very compelling to me that the first of the eightfold factors is right view. And, and this really brings a, a very interesting uh, literal metaphorical aspect to right view. And, and once again, I also want to emphasize in developmental strategies, structuralism and um, think the work of Piaget and literally hundreds of developmentalists, this, this evolutionary vector that I suggested earlier, that I looked at my own experience and what really constitutes development, if I can be so, um, I just to say, observant of my own um, approach to my own personal development is is increased vantage points. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm stuck at a particular level of development. Let's just say it's associated with age. It doesn't really matter, age six or whatever, formal operational. And then you know I'm immersed in that. That that's my surface. That's my that's my terra at that point. And then through factors um, developmental. I will then enter a higher orbit of development. There's a new vantage point. I transcend, but include that previous one. So yeah. I, I wish you, could you say a little bit more about this, this issue of right view and what, in fact, what inspired you to transition? Because uh, to me, it's, you mentioned you're going to church. To me, it seems to suggest that you're actually engaged in, in that path as well, that tradition. So yeah. why, why um, Buddhism, why Zen? How does it speak to you? And then maybe if somehow this notion of right view sneaks into the discussion. Well, yeah. So uh, Christianity came to me quite naturally through family. I was born in Mississippi and, you know, uh, I went to church. <laughs> that was just expected. And I was fascinated with 
what I learned. I was fascinated with Jesus. He's, you know, he's still, I consider a, him a great teacher, and I'm still trying to learn from his philosophy and what he taught. Um, but I think, in addition, I was drawn to broader spiritual questions. And uh, one of my other uh, role models was Ram Dass. Um, When I went to Harvard as a young person, I walked into the student union one day and somebody said, oh, Leary and Alpert have been fired. Mm. I said, oh, who are Leary and Alpert? And they said, oh, they're psychologists. They've been dropping acid with all the undergraduates. They've been fired. That's the first I ever heard of of him. But uh, I started reading his his work at Be Here Now, and I started to expand my interest in spirituality, in different spirituality. And I think it was probably reading Kaplow's book, Three Pillars of Zen. Classic, yeah. Yeah, I just I got it. That's all I can say. I just got it. Yeah, I I see what this is about. I feel it. And I started doing Zen meditation. I started going to the Zen Center in Cambridge. And actually, Andrew, I guess I have to confess, for a brief period, I was trying to start a new religion. Hmm. Um, it was called Tao Zen Christianity. Hmm. Um from Tao, we get the way. From Zen, we get enlightenment. From Christianity, we get salvation. That was the basic idea. Right. I think my son Josh was the only adherent for a while. <laughs> but um, I, I, I feel those three streams of thought influence me strongly. And I still retain this deep interest in Zen Buddhism and as you know, I wrote a book called Meditations on the Third Chinese Patriarch of Zen. Yes, absolutely. And um, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I'm saying I'm saying yes, I'm aware of it. Lovely. Absolutely. So how did I come to write the book? Well, it goes back to this idea that Zen is beyond words. You can't write about it. And of course, I write books, so I had to write about it. But the way that came about was that I did Est. Hmm. Back in the 70s, Est was a very big thing, and it has a lot of characteristics that are Zen-like. And when you did Est, they gave you this little booklet, and it was Verses on the Faith Mind by the Third Chinese Patriarch of Zen. And I used to, every morning, read a verse from that, read a verse from the Bible, meditate, and pray. And at a certain point, that that poem, if you, if that's what it is, just got a hold of me, and I started writing about it, and that's how that came about. And you know, there's just something so true about it. It starts out by saying the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. 
that's a poem about unity and it, it it sounds like what some of the astronauts have said to me you know i'm there i'm in orbit i'm looking down why are people fighting why are they disagreeing why why do we have all this uh disunity can't they see it's all one you know so there's this there there's this kind of um commonality there that I, honestly i'm still exploring and as i told you josh uh who's quite accomplished himself and your son the sensei yeah yeah he's a priest he's a, he's a a sensei he's also a black belt in karate um josh is very focused on things um <laughs> uh, but we're we're comparing the overview effect to to zen and to the idea of enlightenment and it's i can't say that i can summarize yet what we're finding but i can tell you one thing that really stands out for me as a bridge between these two things one is we're kind of i write part josh writes part we go back and forth we kind of meld it together and he wrote something about how the Buddha would tell us that we're already enlightened. Right. It's not becoming enlightened. We are, but we have all this stuff that prevents us from seeing that we are already enlightened. And I read that as I was reviewing what we had written, and I thought, I I don't I I, I got to get this this is the essence of it yeah. and i thought okay i do see an analogy because whenever i give a talk about the overview effect i say we need to realize that we are in space yeah. we've always been in space we'll always be in space astronauts don't go into space they leave the planet and see the truth of our situation. Mm -hmm. And yet our experience every day is the experience of our ancestors a thousand years ago. We're on a platform. The heavens revolve above us. We're not going anywhere. And yet we know intellectually that's not true, you know, but we don't know it experientially. And so I think that's a connection between the two in that um, we don't have to go into space. We are in space, yeah. but what we have to do is get it that yeah. we're in space. That's and, beautiful. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. We don't have to become enlightened. We have to get it that we're enlightened. Yeah. It, that's so, that's so incredibly important. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a process of discovery. Um, it, it's like it said in the tradition, one never really attains enlightenment. One simply ceases to be deluded. So in a certain way, it's yeah. a process of negation and not addition. It's not acquisition, it's subtraction. I mean, Meister Eckhart said, "What you know, the soul grows not by addition, but by subtraction. But that's actually quite beautiful. So we, we simply just forget. It's, it's, it's like you're talking about the fundamental principle of Buddha nature in the, in the Buddhist tradition. We're already the Buddha. In a very real way, we just forgot. And these teachings are all there to cure this primordial amnesia, to fundamentally jog our memories. 
And so it's also, it's beautiful when you say we're on the spaceship. You write about this other places. We're on spaceship Earth. And and just like, um, you know, they say in the Tibetan Book of the Dead over and over, uh, recognition and liberation are simultaneous. We don't recognize, we forget that we're actually in space. And so we, we leave it in, in this provisional way as an astronaut, have this perspective, have this um, perhaps the effect of recognition. But I want to come back and, and say something about, you know, like one of the communities I really work with a lot is, is a, a, it's called the nightclub platform, where we explore the nocturnal meditations, lucid dreaming, dream yoga. And the reason I mentioned this, Frank, is in, this is where your work really resonates with my underview effect, where where I, when I engage in these deep practices, and there are obviously daytime correlates to it, but the nocturnal meditations in particular, double entendre intended, we share the same bed of mind. Um, and we just forget when we wake up. We forget that when we when we descend into the deep, formless dimensions of dreamless sleep, where at that point, we share a commonality, not just with all human life, but with all sentient life. And then fundamentally, as we come up, we lose that sense in, in nocturnal language. It's called non-lucidity. We become non-lucid. We forget. And right. so therefore, to me, I, I feel that commonality. I haven't had the overview effect, but I've definitely had the underview effect where I realized, well, you know, we really are one. I've also had it in meditation, as I'm sure um, you probably had as well. You drop deep within yourself. You're dropping into the same bed of mind. And then somewhat, again, in the same lines, we, we just forget. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, to me, it seems to bring this down to earth to really make the this available commercially right <laughs> commercially available for everybody it's a process of discovery dropping into this fundamental unity that we simply forget and sometimes these these provisional means whether it's ai and the infinite program whether um we could even throw psychedelics in there perhaps cautiously there's whatever we can do um to shake the snow globe and to help us remember we had to share this comment. So it's beautiful. Yeah. It really speaks to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm also very interested in sleep and dreaming. I try to record every dream I remember. Um, and I read a book a long time ago by a psychotherapist whose name I don't recall, but he had an interesting idea of not trying to interpret our dreams according to our waking life. That's right. But more uh, think of, I call it dreamland. You know, what happened in dreamland last night? You know, and I try to think of it that way. But I've also, I've, I've been fascinated with the fact that when you're dreaming, there is, that is a form of consciousness in a way. But then there are periods when we're asleep where there's nothing. And I find that amazing <laughs> that, uh, that a good part of my life, there's, there is no consciousness at all. It's an unexplored territory, isn't it? Yeah, you know, this is this is an incredibly interesting area, Frank, where I'm, I'm actually in consultation with some labs around the world that are now, just brief sidebar, that are now studying this. They call it minimal phenomenal experience. The actual yeah. ability not to attain lucidity merely in the dream state, but lucidity in the deep dreamless state. And so what they argue here, what the wisdom traditions argue, is that absence 
awareness of absence is not absence of awareness. Uh, it's just basically contentless awareness. And because we as egoic beings associate with content, with form, forms are us, right? When those forms are taken away, if we're not familiar with those dimensions, we don't recognize them. So we, right. in, in a very real way, we, it's a little bit like the overview effect. We all experience it, but we may not recognize it if we right. don't have enough kind of sensitivity, if the aperture of our hearts and minds aren't open enough to, to recognize that we miss it. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I think this, to me, this is a wonderful parallel. My, a parallel. my, my friend Stephen LeBerge, who, who really is the father of, of academic scientific lucid dreaming in the Western world, he talks a lot about um, oneironauts. Uh, you know, oneirology is the study of dreams, and like a psychonaut explores the psychic dimensions of the mind, oneironauts explore the inner space of the dreaming mind. And so this comes back to, to me to this fundamental principle of, of exploration of consciousness itself, this space principle, that, that it's not just so-called physical space is an oxymoron, but you know what I mean. The, yeah. the exploration of outer space has a very deep intimate connection to the exploration of inner space until I think one definition of non-duality would be perhaps um, not seeing a fundamental distinction between those two. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And maybe that's what we're looking at right now is where, where are the connections between these two? I think that's what Josh and I are working on together is uh, what what can we see in our two different experiences and traditions? Where are the connections there? And we're exploring. We don't have any answers in advance. We are mutually exploring this territory. Yeah. It's fantastic. And, and, and let me just blow this out your way. Um, there's some very interesting um, workers involved in, in deep somatic work. Um, and I, I, I do a little bit of this work in my own deep spiritual practice over the decades. And it, what's really lovely here, Frank, to me is that it's a little bit kind of a Mobius strip thing. It's when we go deep, deep, deep within ourselves to the very center of ourselves, we'll, we'll be perhaps um, privileged to discover that there is no center to that self. In other words, the, the, the empty nature of our being in a certain way, we become nothing, this emptiness that Buddhist teaching talks about. But then, to me, what happens is then your body, emptiness really means fullness, your body is replaced by the body of the cosmos. And so it's like a, it's like a Mobius strip. You go to the center of yourself at Centralist, there's nobody there. Okay. You back up, your body has then been replaced by the cosmos. And right. it's, it's super interesting to me that there are some very compelling thinkers now talking about the, the analogous relationship of, of the brain and the outer cosmos, that when you're actually looking at the cosmos, it has a, a, a kind of homologous relationship, even yeah. visually, to the, to the contents of, of, the, of our brains. I find that really um, quite compelling and a bit of a mind trip, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I write about that in, in one of my other books on the overview effect. The cosmic hypothesis. Just gonna, perfect question. I was just going to ask you if you could go there. So we're we're on track. Yeah. Talk, well, talk to one us of about the that. things I talk about in that book is that there are certain images of the cosmos that look a lot like a human brain, and um, it, it's the structure of the galaxies actually 
right, right behind you. It's right over your head there. I mean, your brain is right next to the galaxy back there, Frank. So that's perfect. All right. Sorry. Just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Well, what was interesting, the passage I quoted was um, the, the article I quoted talked about the sci- scientist who had created this imagery of the galaxy, the, the large scale structure of the galaxies. And, and it was basically, as you said, very similar to the human brain. But the scientists really wanted to point out that they didn't think this meant that there was a cosmic mind or anything like that. They just really wanted to get away from that. And my reaction was, you know, right. looks like a duck, quacks like a duck. Yeah. <laughs> think it might be a duck. Yeah. But my question in the Cosmo Hypothesis was this. Why is it that the cosmos or Cosma, as I, I call the universe Cosma, why has Cosma nurtured on this little planet at the edge of the Milky Way, humanity, which is about to become a spacefaring species? And isn't this miraculous over four and a half billion years? It didn't have to happen that we're at this point. And I ask, what is our purpose? Because that this particular line of thought started when I was writing the overview effect, and it was after the Challenger accident. Mm. And there was a day. Uh, this week with David Brinkley had Isaac Asimov and Tom Wolf on and, and George will and George will said, well, haven't we been using rather banal reasons for space exploration, like uh, nonstick frying pans. And he was pointing out, Hey, seven people just died doing this. We need a better reason for it than that. And Tom Wolf, who wrote the right stuff, said, you're right, you're right. We've never had a philosophy of space exploration. So that's what led to the Cosmo Hypothesis. I was thinking, philosophically, what's the purpose of human space exploration? And everything I read was to benefit us. Very exploitative, you know? Anthropocentric. To benefit us. And I ask myself, can we benefit the cosmos? Is the cosmos in need of us? Uh, why are why are we here in this way? And the hypothesis is that the universe is evolving and it's alive and it's intelligent and it's conscious. And we know that it is ipso facto because we are alive and intelligent. We're conscious. Is it our purpose to expand the consciousness of the cosmos? Now, incidentally, Elon Musk, who's all about getting humans to Mars, he doesn't have quite the same idea, but he says he doesn't want consciousness to be snuffed out by a catastrophe on earth. It's a little different from my philosophy, but he's kind of pushing at the same boundary. 
And so I would like to see our philosophy as we move outward off the planet to be that we give as much as we take. We're, we're exploring as much as we're exploiting. And this may seem like quite a high bar to reach, but we've changed our attitude toward Earth. I mean, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, we really were exploitative in our attitude toward Earth. It's just a, a big rock that we can use. And we're beginning to see the Earth as a living organism. And that that's in part because of the astronauts' reports of what they saw. Yeah, so I... I think we have an opportunity to reach a higher level of awareness of ourselves as we leave planet Earth and and connect with the cosmos. And I'll just leave it with one thing, Andrew. I've been surprised at astronauts who've said, I felt really comfortable out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to come back. That's kind of remarkable because it's just like when you're scuba diving, you can't be down there without special equipment or you'll die. And you can't be in outer space without special equipment. And yet so many astronauts felt like they were coming home. Yeah. yeah. This is something we have to learn more about, I think. Yeah. And so what can you say what your intuition might be, Frank, when, when they suggest something like that? That they're coming, uh, coming home, returning to this kind of um, connective tissue of of humanity itself. That recognition. Do you think that that what that common thread is, the universality of the human condition? Do you think that's part of what is associated with that homecoming? Uh, well, first of all, Edgar Mitchell and others have said we are made of star stuff. Our bodies are made of the chemicals and and constituents of exploding stars. And so that may be part of it. I think there may be something built into our DNA that is drawing us outward because of we do have a purpose that we do have a role to play in the cosmos that we haven't really completely grasped yet. And, and I think that, um, you know, one of the people who flew recently on a Blue Origin flight, Chris Bosshausen, said he felt, I, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like he felt a physical tug mm. outward into mm. the universe, Beautiful. wanting to go further, wanting to explore more. And I've heard other astronauts talk about something like that. So... I, I don't know enough about it yet to be definitive, but I think human expansion off of off the planet is actually part of a quest. You know how spiritually you'll go on pilgrimages? Yeah. You know, and you go to a holy site or something like that, but it's the journey as much as it is being at the shrine. I, I think that human exploration of the universe is like that. We, 
we may say, well, we're going for the following reason, but I think we're responding to being called and we're going to have to discover it by doing it. That's beautiful. Yeah, to expand, to grow, to to increase our, our um, again, dilate our consciousness, open the aperture of our awareness. With your permission, Frank, I, I, want, I, I don't generally share too many questions, um, but a, a really dear friend of mine who's actually um, fundamental in a very interesting field called exo-studies. Um, and I'll send you a link to some of his work. He's really brilliant. And this notion of exo-studies is really quite compelling. But I'm going to share with you, he, he said, oh, you're talking to Frank. Ask, maybe ask him this question for me. So I'm going to pass along this question, okay? He's All quite right. a clever fellow. Given the overview effect highlights a deeper connection with humanity and even helps us redefine our self-concept as humans, as, um, as humans, as planetary beings, all living on the same blue marble floating in space, dot, dot, dot. Here's the question. How might the trends in AI development and UAPET, so that the, the UFO, I guess UAP is a new term for that, um, ET disclosure, produce, uh, um, how might the, the trends in AI development and UAPET disclosure produce their own overview effect and invite us to redefine once again ourselves as a human species? This time, not just as a plant, as planetary beings, but as galactic or cosmic beings. In other words, we as humans are about to go through a major deconstruction and reconstruction in terms of self-identity. What role is AI and UAP ET going to play as disruptors to our current existential sense of who we are? And what are the opportunities and challenges that await us as we come to terms with these other very non-human forms of intelligence, consciousness, Haran, AI, and UAP, ET. So mm -hmm. that's, it's a long question, but I found it a very compelling one. And I'm curious how that lands with you and what you might have to say about it. Well, two things. I'm also fascinated with artificial intelligence. I noticed that in your work, yes. And I'm fascinated with uh, UAPs. <laughs> um, uh, so... It's certainly a relevant question for me. Um, so first of all, I don't use the term artificial intelligence. I use the term another intelligence. Okay. One thing I've seen with humans as AI has burst on the scene, one thing I've seen is constantly trying to compare it to ourselves. Um, when I interact with AIs, and I've interacted with a lot of them, I try not to compare it with humans. I try to, it's like openness. I try to be open, right, to what I'm experiencing with these AIs. And as far as our identity, that's been at the core of human relationship with AI since the idea was first floated in 1955. Um, the term AI was first constructed by a group of people meeting at Dartmouth College, and they said they believed that it would be possible within a reasonable period of time for a computer to simulate everything a human could do. And ever since then, that's been the, the mark. But also, there's been this fear of how much could an AI do, yeah. and there's been like an AI could never beat a chess master. Oh, 
It just beat a chess master. Well, that's a pretty simple game. An AI can never beat a Go master. Oh, an AI beat a Go master. AI could never write a novel. Well, they're writing novels. An AI, I, you get my point. Totally. So we're constantly trying to differentiate ourselves and find some higher ground where an AI could never be. I think that's a big mistake. And it's, it's kind of fear-based. So my question is, <clears throat> how can we interact with this new technology, which after all, we have, we have created it. We are the fathers and mothers of these AI children. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, how can we evolve in concert with the AI? And in the Cosmo Hypothesis, I talk about uh, Homo Occumensis, hmm. Hmm. which is the AIs. You know, they could help us explore the universe. And within my organization, Human Space Program, we're looking to create a roadmap or blueprint for human expansion into the solar ecosystem that's sustainable, inclusive, and ethical. And we're planning to use AI to help us do that sure. cooperatively. So I, I think your question, your friend's question is right on. And in a funny way, the overview effect is all about creating unity with humanity and AI and its promise or its threat, whatever you want to call it, could help create unity in humanity of figuring out how to work with these these uh, intelligences. Now, the UAPs are similar. I wrote a book called The, Search, the SETI Factor, and it was about what would happen if we made unambiguous contact with extraterrestrial intelligence. And I wasn't as interested in how, what would, would we use radio waves or would it be UAPs or how would it happen? But how would human consciousness change to know that other intelligent beings existed in the cosmos? Would it create unity? Would it create disruption? And I, I think it's a choice, like it is with AI. We have a choice. We can be afraid. We can see UAPs as a threat, or we could see it as an opportunity. And I say this without knowing what a UAP is or a UFO. I've tried to be, here we go back to the same thing, openness, right? There's this whole tendency to go from they're real, physically real, which I think they are, to they are piloted by extraterrestrial beings. You don't really have to make that leap. And the big breakthrough is that the American government, after 70 years of challenging whether they're actually real, 
has now said, yes, they are real. And to my surprise, the government has said, we don't know what they are. I'm, I'm amazed that they're saying that, that they don't know what they are. That they, but, that they would be so open and humble and, and, and the recognition. Of I, st- I still don't know why. But for those of us who are interested in the topic, we can explore it now and talk about it like you and I are without having our careers completely destroyed by talking about it. And, you know, that's very recent and it's very good. And maybe again, it will help to create some unity among humans to begin thinking about what these these phenomena are and not to shame people who have had experiences with them, you know, but try to find out what the experience means, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, in that sense of challenging our identity, making us think, and possibly showing us that whatever UAPs are, whatever AIs are, they're not human. <laughs> and we are. And so if the overview effect is about unity and oneness, maybe these other phenomena will have a a, a similar impact on our species. And, and isn't it wonderful, Frank, that, that what this does to me is it um it UAP, ET, these sorts of things, so-called paranormal events, they they stretch me out of my comfort zone. Again, it's a little bit again opening, stretching, opening, stretching. And so the revelatory of, of my usual concentric ways of being, staying in my comfort zones that, hey, this doesn't really fit my worldview. So I'm just going to reject it. Instead of having a more agnostic, open-minded, like, hey, well, wait a second, maybe what does this have to show me? How can it expand my sense of identity? The very fact that it that it's it's um, challenging me, th- maybe throwing a couple of darts in my sense of identity, should be. It's like when you uh, assume a good yoga pose. You know, sometimes that yoga pose isn't so comfortable, but it's it's good for growth, right? So, I love working with this stuff because it may not always be present, uh, pleasant to my contractive ways. But it does invite me, like the galaxy behind you, to open, expand my horizons to say, hey, wait a second. You know, what if these, what if this was true? What if they were as real or as unreal as I am? Like you're saying, what does this do with my sense of identity in the cosmos? How can how can it help me um basically open, open yeah. dimensions yeah. of being that are just much larger than this uh, you know, highly centric way of relating to things, right? Well, it reminds me, yes, and I absolutely agree. Anybody who knows me, Andrew, will tell you I'm a creature of habit. I like I have the same routine every morning. Right. And I I do it wherever I am pretty much. And uh, and I, I do like to have a structured life. It's just me. Sure. But uh, I'm reminded of an interview that I did with three astronauts on the International Space Station. and. Um, I asked them at the end, you know, do you have any final words for our audience? And Anne McLean, who's a very well-known astronaut in a lot of ways, 
a very interesting person, said, well, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, well, you, you really you really can't learn anything new without getting outside your comfort zone. I'd really urge everybody to do that. And it's uncomfortable, but, you know, it's really worth it. And there she was floating up and down in weightlessness and, and holding the microphone 240 miles from the surface of the earth. And uh, so there was a certain validity to what she was saying. And she was outside her comfort zone, I'm sure. And uh, it it's true. It's really true. You You do need to do that in order to learn something. And it also, it does reflect, you almost quoted Edgar Mitchell just now. I mean, <laughs> he basically said some astronauts, some people who've gone into outer space just didn't allow any new bit of information to come in. And therefore, it didn't have very much impact. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I think I can be a person who urges everyone to get outside their comfort zone because it's just what I need to do, you know? Isn't it, Frank? And also when I think on a very colloquial weather, because weather level is, you know, we're on, on some levels, you talk about the democratization of the overview effect. You know, how can we make it, make it more available? How can we have intimations of it? Well, interesting, in my experience, in relation to what you said about you're a creature of habit, I think we're all creatures of habit. To me, to connect these two things is is travel. I mean, first of all, it will reveal your habitual patterns. You know, you're you're going to China, and, and instead of going to a nice new Chinese restaurant, you see McDonald's, right? So you go to McDonald's, right? Because that's more comfortable for you. So when we talk about taking these massive journeys on a on a kind of paranormal level, this is just get a passport, get out of yourself, travel, be a, be a be a citizen of the world. And so I think part of the democratization of this is, is to tease out some of the underlying themes and narratives and principles, which is, I think, maybe the essence of my conversation with you. Because if we have these effects, and we have them in AI, we have them with psychedelics, we have them with meditation, we have them with below going below the surface, well, that means there has to be some commonality in the, in the psychic structure of the individual that can then make this a democratic experience. You don't, you don't have to go. I know my dear friend, the astronaut Ron Guerin, he asserts this, you know, you don't have to go out onto outer space. Um, the, the thing to me is, and this is what I'm trying to tease apart with you, is let's look at this, the fundamental central narratives that unite all these experiences, the kind of common denominators. And then maybe that's how we make it democratized. Then we say, hey, wait a second. Okay, I see that this travel principle is involved here. The comfort zone principle is involved. Space of mind is involved. Wait a second, I can create something here that doesn't even involve an AI he headset. These are qualities I have again within my own being that I can access with these some of inner technologies. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, the prize, the Holy Grail, as I said before, is a different level of consciousness in order to pilot Spaceship Earth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my own view is we should use every tool that we can. Um, there is, well, I, I, I'm not going to say we can't get large numbers of people to go into outer space. I think that we will move from mission to migration. I believe we will have large numbers of people living off the planet 
over time. But in terms of the short term, in order to elicit the overview effect, um, you know, we're not going to send very large numbers. It's just financially and physically impossible. And so, yes, if we can learn more about the effect, then we can learn more about how to share that. And, you know, the other thing is, first of all, you don't have to have huge numbers of people in order to have social change. If you look at the civil rights movement, ultimately a lot of people had to get involved, but a few leaders showed the way. And when you think of change, there are usually a very small number of people who start it. So um, if we could have small numbers of people with overview, let's say overview consciousness, that could start the ball rolling. Similarly, of the people who do go and have the full overview effect experience, not every one of them has to be transformed. Um, a percentage of them can. And in order to bring change on Earth, not every person has to have the full experience. I mean, if, if virtual reality can get you there 80% of the way, or scuba diving can, or whatever it is, uh, we're talking about social change right now. And, and that, that can happen in, in many ways, and it doesn't have to be perfect, you know? And along those lines, Frank, are, are you optimistic about the capacities of the planetary condition for this type of change to happen happen at a global level? I mean, is it naive to think that, you know, there's all this jargon these days about where we're, we're age of Aquarius. I mean, it's a kind of tipping point that the cosmos is about to open up into these vast new dimensions of awareness. You know, I, I'm personally, I'm, I'm slightly um, cautiously optimistic, but realistically, if you look at stages of human development and cosmic cycles of transformation, it doesn't seem to really work that way. But I'm curious in your own experience, um, because there is something to be said about these tipping points that, I mean, one, you just said, it doesn't take a bunch of people, a Gandhi, a Martin Luther King, a Kennedy to really change things. And also within our own experiences, it's like, if you have a, an out of space, um, uh, out, uh, cosmic experience or an out of body experience and your death experience, you don't have to have these over and over. I mean, one is enough to change you. So there's something about the power of these that you don't need. And so how do you feel about the the proclamations that that we are potentially at a at a cosmic tipping point where the collective psyche consciousness itself can somehow open and expand? Does that resonate with you, or do you think that's naive? Um, it resonates with me. I'm optimistic in the sense that just from my own experience, Andrew, I had the experience of uh, starting with my involvement with Space Studies Institute and O'Neill. I had my experience, and I wrote the book. And honestly, I intended for the book to start a revolution. Mm. Uh, that was my goal. And for 20 years, I thought I had failed. It seemed like nothing was happening. Nothing changed. And I just thought, wow, I was naive. <laughs> and then 
we probably don't have time to go into all the details, but slowly but surely I started to see, oh, people were reading this book. It was having an impact. And now I'm confident in saying there is a movement to bring the overview effect down to earth, to share it widely, to have this change occur, to have the tipping point occur. And I think there's also a recognition that it's not inevitable. It's up to us. It's a choice. And just from seeing the number of people who are putting effort into this movement right now, that makes me optimistic. It really does because it, it started like a pebble dropping into a pond. And then, you know, the ripples have occurred over time. I've been very blessed over 35 years to see it go from thinking there would be a revolution to thinking it was a failure to a glimmer of hope to now seeing that a lot of people are involved. And I'll just leave it with one thing. A lot of people have been contacting me and they've been saying, did you see that Stephen Colbert asked the astronauts about the overview effect on his show? Did you know about that? I'm a huge fan of Stephen Colbert, but I didn't know that. That's awesome. Well, he had the four he had the four Artemis astronauts. The Artemis people, exactly. Yeah. And I've actually interviewed two of them. One of them was on the ISS with Anne McLean, Christina Koch. And and the other was Reed Wiseman. I've interviewed both of them. And so just in the middle of the interview, Stephen Colbert said well, what about the overview effect? Tell us about that. And Christina gave a beautiful description of the experience and, you know, what it's like. So we've gone from this book being published to um, a mainstream TV personality just throwing it out there like, well, you know what I'm talking about, right? To a NASA astronaut say, oh, yeah, here's what it is. So I think we've made a lot of progress, and so I hope we will continue. I just thought about this, Frank. This is very interesting to me because I'm, I'm very interested in, in um, what affects transformation. And, and perhaps it could be something analogous to what is creating the punctuated equilibrium, the tipping point of this crap show with global warming. You know, here, here I think this really may be at play here. You know, we pump, in this case, negative energy, CO2. You know, we're, it takes a while. You're pumping energy, pumping energy, polluting, polluting, polluting. And all of a sudden, it reaches a tipping point, and we have what we have now. But I think that same phenomenology is taking place here. You doing your work. Other people are doing their work. It's, it's, you're putting energy into the system. It's like heating up this big vat of water. You may not really know the fruits of your efforts, but if you if you dip your finger in, hey, it's it's heating up. The phase transformation hasn't taken place, but you and your work and others who are doing similar, if they understand this, then they're patient, they endure, they just put the energy into the system, and then that then that exact same tipping point takes place, but now in a wisdom sense. So yeah. I think that that could be um, helpful to understand for people who are doing this work. They may not be able to reap the rewards of their personal efforts. They realize, you know, I'm, we're putting a lot of energy into the system, and then it's going to come to a boil. 
And so uh, that I think that that the, could really be at play here and then helpful to understand for people who are doing this sort of work because then that gives them the fortitude to stay the course. And I would I would just put out the word to everyone who's doing this kind of work and it, maybe you've never heard of the overview effect but you're trying to make the world a better place uh environmental consciousness or humanitarian work whatever it might be you know yeah don't give up you you've stated it beautifully uh one day you might wake up and realize that you've had a huge influence that you didn't know about and um you know the only the only failure is to give up really <laughs> i mean just keep going keep going and uh eventually you'll probably realize that what you did worked in some way beautiful frank this is a wonderful way as we start to close up this is a wonderful way to wrap things up because i think what it does two things in my opinion one it does bring you know joining heaven and earth um, because one of the real problems with as you know with the whole spiritual business is spiritual bypassing and escapism you know i'm just going to fedex out of this the plan's going to hell i don't care i'm going to some other planet right so what's beautiful here in terms of closing up is you take this view and you're bringing it to earth because it, it, i mean my big thing over the last couple of years is i've become more and more aware painfully aware of the meta crisis that we're in is that if if what we're doing and let's say in my business is a um, so-called spiritual teacher even though i hate that term if it isn't relevant i mean if it isn't um helping the planet today it's irrelevant it just it just doesn't matter and yeah. so that's why i'm so i'm so interested now when talking about the transformative agents of change who are joining heaven and earth who are bringing these in this case quite literally overview effects in on, into the terra not the dimension where we can really transform because otherwise we're not going to be around to talk about any overview or underview effect. <laughs> it's like a done deal. So, um, my dear friend, anything else that any any question that I didn't ask you? Um, anything else that you want to share um, to my audience? Um, you've been very generous with your time and your insights. Anything that I may have missed? A topic you want to hang on? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say, and I did touch on the idea of moving from mission to migration um o'neill laid out a vision a long time ago that we could move from space exploration and development to space migration we do have an entire ecosystem out there waiting for us and there is pretty good evidence that our technological civilization is putting a huge burden on the planet and we should do everything we can to minimize that impact but i don't think we should ignore the possibility that we can expand our range as a species without destroying the solar ecosystem and that's actually another entire conversation we can't get into but i do believe that we ought to consider that what we're talking about as we think about space is how that can benefit the earth and that was always that was always the vision of the early uh people working on these topics so one thing the human space program is doing we consider ourselves an environmental organization as much as 
an organization interested in space development. And so I'd like to see these different movements come together for the benefit of Earth. Well, what what defines environment more than space itself, right? Right. So when you talk about environmental organizations, the fundamental environment is space itself. So, I mean, it's just wonderfully elegant. And I also, what I really like about this as I close up from my end is when I look at your work and, and even our conversations here, it's very interesting to me sometimes to to dance between inner and outer space. Okay, like is, is Frank now talking about inner space? Is he talking about outer space? I think that in itself is, is actually quite revelatory because the fact that we can cross-pollinate in this homologous way between inner and outer space is one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is yeah. to say there's, there's really some wonderful... Um, abilities between dancing between these two dimensions so outside of your your website um other ways that people can support you to um, get to know your work you, you know we're going to post all your books at the bottom with your website and the other things along um connecting to what you're doing that my audience can be through. yeah so uh i'm i'm assuming when you mention my website it's uh frankwhiteauthor.com right. a lot of material there uh multiverse Publishing is my publisher. There's information there. And then the Human Space Program, Inc. <clears throat> we have a website. I would encourage people to come take a look at that. Uh, that's the or the nonprofit that is uh, working on really the big picture. And I think that would be a good start for everyone. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, big, really big bow of gratitude, Frank. So thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule. It's really a total delight to get to know you a little bit better. Um, on behalf of my community, my audience, big uh, bow of gratitude. And I look forward to these um, other projects you're writing, your book with your son. I can't wait to read that. That's going to be so cool. But once again, all the work you've done, all the work you continue to do, you're, you're the living embodiment of the fruition of this sort of journey and this enterprise. And so it's a delight to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. It's been my my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us, and a big thanks to Frank White for sharing his wisdom with us. We sure hope you're enjoying the Edge of Mind podcast as much as we enjoy making it. Please do spread the word. Rate the podcast, review it, and subscribe to it if you haven't already. It's one way to invite more people into the community and into conversations in the fields of science, philosophy, psychology, spirituality, and the arts. Mm-hmm.